0: Hi, this is Laura,
1: and this is Luli,
0: and you are listening to Astella Around the World.
1: We will be zooming out of Brazil to explore the worlds of extraordinary global tech thought leaders in a deep dive into their stories, their inspirations, views on tech investing, and perspectives on the different aspects and trends happening in the local and global tech ecosystems.
0: ASTELLA is an early stage Brazilian-based VC. Stay tuned and welcome to ASTELLA Around the World! So Brock, thank you so much to be here. I'm happy to hear all the stories that I knew in Kaufman and I thought it was so funny and the storytelling so nice. And you were one of the first guys I invited to this podcast. So Thank you so much to accept, and I hope we'll have a wonderful time uh, listening to your story and your journey.
2: (laughs) Oh, pleasure. No, you're so sweet. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Nice to have you. It's a pleasure to meet you, Brock. To get started, I would love to give everybody a short bio. Uh, Brock has experience in public and private markets with a career span of a range of investing roles across the buy and sell sides and in capabilities as a limited and a general partner. Brock is founding partner of Summit Action Fund, a Richmond, uh, Virginia-based venture capital firm working with passionate founders using technology to offer a best-in-class customer experience. Brock also acts as a managing director at James River Capital, a family office investing in diverse set of alternative investments, and as an active agile investor. Prior to pursuing venture capital full-time, Brock was a partner at Pleasant Lake Partners in New York Beach's hedge fund and as as a global head of equity trading at Citigroup in London. Welcome, Brock. Thank you. Brock, let me start with your journey until you arrived at
0: uh, venture capital. So you worked in financial market previously. Could you tell us a little bit of uh, your background and how you find your way to be a VC You also have a role on family offices plus angel investors. So if you could uh, tell us how you divide your time and how you arrived on so many different roles in VC, it would be awesome to hear. (laughs) Sure.
2: So I I think venture is one of these amazing asset classes because everybody's path here tends to be circuitous. I think everyone has a different story. I was a government and history major in college. I thought I wanted to go into politics. I decided to intern at a hedge fund, you know, mostly to confirm that this was the path I didn't want to take. This was before my fourth year, before my senior year of college. I worked for Paul Jones at Tudor, sort of one of the great macro fund managers. He was a UVA grad. Uh, I basically begged him for a job. And the experience blew me away. More than the job itself, I became fascinated by Paul. Uh, and the culture he created at Tudor. Every person at the entire firm, from the maintenance staff to the president, loved him and thought he was not only just a phenomenal investor, but a great person. And so I left that summer convinced that I had to change my entire career trajectory and pursue finance full-time. So I ended up joining Citigroup's Prop Trading Group. It was this incredible experience, I had two wonderful bosses, and the three of us, you know, basically together got to build a small firm within the larger bank. And I ended up rising through the ranks. I moved to London for a few years and then back to New York. And in 2011, a longtime friend named Michael Marks, who was running Riverwood Capital at the time, asked if I wanted to invest in uh, a headphones business. It was called Soul Republic. And it was started by the son of uh, Noel Lee, who ran Monster Cable, sort of a big technology company in the U.S. And I asked Michael, hey, what's the ticker? And he told me there, there wasn't a ticker. Uh, and I was sort of a public markets guy. And he said, it's a private company. And I know this sounds so silly, but I had no appreciation for what a private business was. Like, I, I basically thought there were mom and pop companies like restaurants and there were public companies and there was nothing in between. And holy cow, there's a lot in between. And so I ended up investing in this headphones business, really on blind faith and just trust in Michael's recommendation. Sort of fast forward, nine months later, Monster decides to buy the company at 3X our cost basis. I'm like snapping and clapping. I think this is the greatest thing ever. This is so easy. These venture people act like it's really hard. It's not, it's super fun. It requires no work and you make multiples of your money. And I've never had anything happen to me like that since. It's been 10 years of hard work. But what that experience did for me, you know, was really sort of light this spark and passion for venture. And so I moved back to New York in 2012 and basically started sending LinkedIn messages to founders that I thought were building cool companies. And the venture scene in New York at the time was was really nascent. I mean, it was obviously the sort of financial capital of the world but other than USV, not too many people doing venture. And so my conversion rate was very high and ended up just sort of building my network one person at a time, one company at a time. And you do that for a few years over and over again. I became convinced that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And so I launched Summit Action in 2016 and have been wearing these two hats ever since. I've got my venture hat with the fund and then the family office hat with James River Capital.
0: That's interesting. And what about the angel investing? Did you start uh, putting your own money to work at that time as well?
2: Again, another sort of great thing about this asset class and kind of my three roles, if I think about fund, family office, and angel investing, they can all work side by side and very nicely. I think those, obviously, the fund comes first, and everything I do is through that lens. But I think... Those three pockets of capital give me you know, diversity from an industry perspective. I can look at a bunch of t- different types of companies and diversity of check size. I think I can do something crazy and insane with my own personal capital, and that's where some of the angel investments have come from, and then maybe something a little more responsible with fund capital.
1: That's really cool. It's good because it gives you flexibility and um, a wide range that you can actually explore and have fun with, right? But is there any certain investment theses in particular and key elements in this range that you are looking for in opportunities?
2: Sure. So I've been a generalist my whole career and I think that I was a generalist in the public markets and I took that same mindset in the private markets and I think that served me well. I think it's very easy to pigeonhole yourself into too narrow a scope and risk missing out on an opportunity. I half-jokingly say to people that our bar for portfolio entry is, one, I've got to be able to understand the business, and that sounds obvious, but I think it actually eliminates a number of sort of specialized and boutique spaces. I think there's elements of healthcare and cybersecurity and energy that I just frankly don't have the skill sets to evaluate properly. And then the second component is the potential outcome has to be large. We are definitely playing for the outsized return. And then within that context, you know, we're basically looking for five criteria. So one, a large market. Two, structurally great unit economics. Three, a delightful customer experience. Something that just, when you use that product or service, it feels magical. Four, a competitive advantage or a path to it, and then five, a remarkable founder or CEO. So those are the things we're looking for.
0: And how do you think about uh, portfolio construction? I mean, do you? Um, how important for you is ownership and how do you balance uh, sectors, teasers and stages throughout uh, your portfolio?
2: So... Ownership's a function of check size, which is a function of fund size. And so if you're managing a small fund, I think it's very difficult to build ownership over time. And that's probably harder than ever today. Rounds are larger. Valuations are higher than they've ever been. For us, and I'd say, you know, on the aggregate, we're trying to deploy as much capital into that first check as we can. And then depending on the stage of the business, so our goal is to write our first check generally into a Series A business. So these are post-product market fit, post-revenue businesses that we're seeing a cohort of customers that is incredibly engaged and incredibly passionate. And hopefully we're writing that first check before the business sort of scales in in a hockey stick-like fashion. So again, depending on where we come in, we could come in a little earlier and in times we've come in as late as the series C, we may reserve nothing for a late stage business or we may reserve up to a hundred percent of our initial check size. You know, one comment from me on ownership. This is just something that I've struggled with my entire career and I found it very odd to me. The insistence of so many VCs on ownership targets. And I get the argument for it, which is. There's a power law to venture returns, a small number of companies are going to account for the majority of a fund's return, and thus you need significant ownership to ensure that you actually get paid on your winners. Completely understand the argument to have a very defined ownership threshold. That's not been the approach that I've taken. Uh, We've never had a specific ownership mandate I spend far more time thinking about what the return profile of the business is and how much risk I have to take to get that return versus, hey, we're only doing deals where we can get 5 percent or 10 percent or 20 percent. I think, you know, as folks like Tiger have been employing a, a fairly different strategy in the last 12 months, you know, getting some of those defined ownership targets has been more challenging forever for a number of funds.
1: We'd love to understand a little bit about your decision making process. If you could share with us a little bit about that and if that evolved over time and how it was then and how it's now.
2: Yep. I'm a huge believer in paying to learn. And this is just something that I adopt in, in my personal and professional life. Like you gotta make mistakes. And I've made a ton of them. And thankfully, you know, none of them have been exceptionally expensive but I think they've all come with, with a lot of learning. To me, venture is a rep space game. So it's very hard to hone your craft without going out and meeting companies and doing deals. I think about sort of the category of companies you know, in a very simplistic fashion. So you've got bad, good, great, and exceptional. And bad tends to be very easy to identify quickly. You meet a company, and if it looks and feels like a fraud, it's probably a fraud. What I think is much harder is differentiating between great and exceptional, but there's a huge delta in returns and the return profile between a great and exceptional business. And so if you only see 10 companies, I think identifying an exceptional business can be really hard. But if you see a 1,000 companies, you're benchmark or barometer for what exceptional is, it's just way better. And I think, you know, this is one of the things that is, I find really difficult for regional based funds. Now, can you get away with it if you are New York centric or Valley centric or LA centric? Of course, like your cohort of companies is going to be a large enough where you can differentiate. You know, if you're a fund based in Richmond, Virginia, And your only mandate is to invest in Richmond companies. That's challenging because frankly, you're just not going to see enough companies to understand the difference between something that's great and exceptional.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting that you, you know, with your beginner's luck, you started with exceptional. So.
2: (laughs) purely (laughs) luck for sure.
1: (laughs) And then
0: under this uh, perspective of uh, how to identify the degrees of uh, from bad to exceptional, I mean, we are facing, I think, uh, all over the world, but mostly in the U.S. and Brazil is starting to face uh, as well a compression of uh, the timeline for startups to fundraise. So deals are becoming faster and uh, the amount of time that we have to evaluate the opportunity is becoming much smaller than before. How do you weigh I speed on your decision-making process and uh, what are the essential aspects that you see to win a deal?
2: Yeah, when you hear a story that firm goes from, you know, meeting to term sheet in 24 hours or 48 hours, I mean, that's frankly hard to digest. I'm by nature, a detail-oriented person. I like (laughs) gathering all the relevant facts, thinking about them for a while just basically, you know, sitting and brainstorming and then ultimately coming to a decision. If you manage a small fund, I think one of the few advantages you have is speed. And so if you can make decisions more quickly than a larger fund, you know, you need to lean into that because I think it is a competitive advantage. My advice to investors and founders is to try to build a relationship outside of a fundraising window. You know, I think it's Mark Suster at Upfronts who says lines, not dots. You know if you can build this sort of arc, you know if you can build a relationship with a management team with a founder over time, that becomes a more meaningful relationship. I think about the times that I've been most confident in my career. It's when I've met that founder long before the clock started in a quote unquote fundraising process. I've watched or known this founder for a number of years. And when it ultimately became time to invest, I almost knew the answer before it started. So that's something that I think can really go a long way.
0: That's awesome. And how is your strategy to engage founders before the, the rounds and or with a bit of advance? I mean, how do you nudge the relationship and you nurture the founders and the companies?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is an area where I think it's sort of a venture investor's dream. Like it can bring together every one of your skill sets. So one, just being innately curious, be, you know, wanting to constantly learn more. I joke with people that my, I had a day job and, you know, you're essentially clocking in at one time and clocking in at another time. And in venture, to me, it's entirely different. To my wife's chagrin, uh, my Tuesdays and Saturdays look eerily similar because the wheels are just constantly turning. You're going down the rabbit hole and one founder's leading to another and that's leading to a company and that's leading to something else and you get excited and you just race and chase and that ultimately leads to doing deals. I think that's one aspect to it. Again, trying to create densest and stickiest networks possible for you and me. You know, Kaufman has been exceptional. We've got 64 people in our class, that's essentially, you know, for me, 63 new connections to, you know, many firms that I didn't have a relationship with. If you compile that sort of across the Kaufman ecosystem, that's now 700 plus fellows that with a quick email or Slack message, I can get in touch. And that may be meeting a founder, that may be diligent in a business we're working on, and just helping compress that time frame even further. So, you know, for me, it's a combination of staying curious, being willing to sort of dive down that rabbit hole, and also keeping a strong and diverse set of networks.
0: That's interesting. And talking about sourcing deals, what are your main uh, strategies? Or because there are a lot of VCs that are very active on Twitter, so they catch attention from uh, other investors and in entrepreneurs. And others are totally behind uh, the scenes, but have a beautiful network. How do you feel this challenge?
2: Yeah, I think being reactive to sourcing deals is really hard. And creating a very strong brand in venture takes an incredible amount of time. And I think it's particularly challenging as a generalist. You know, I'm in awe of some of the more specialized funds who have sort of said, hey, we are Domain experts in this space, and then have done a really good job of winning deals in that space. As a result, Uh, that's not me. I've been a believer that you have to hunt for the best deals, and I think that's uh, more true for smaller funds. And that hunt, sort of, as I mentioned, you know, previously, is not linear. You know, I'll find that I'll have a conversation with one of our founders who will then intro me to another founder she'll connect me to a VC who connects me to a new company. And you just continue from sort of point to point. At some point along the way, you find something that's really magical. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, I know I have to invest in this business. And now let me start this diligence process. So then I I think about, all right, you know, that's kind of the sourcing strategy is just stay curious, stay passionate and kind of continuously be on the hunt. I think You know, winning that deal is a different animal. Part of it, as I mentioned, is building that relationship with a founder outside of a formal fundraising process. Like they get to know you when you're not holding a check over their head and they're not holding capacity over your head. So I love being able to interact with a founder when sort of the pressure and certainly time pressure of a formal financing is off. When I think about winning for us, you know, most of our deals aren't terribly competitive. You know, we tend to have two types of companies. One is frankly, companies that aren't, you know, other people aren't looking at. They're too early, you know, haven't ticked, you know, the boxes that a number of, of maybe more prominent VCs are looking for. And then the next set of deals are deals that we're not leading. We're a minority investor alongside a lead. That we likely have a relationship with, you know, the check that we're writing generally isn't crowding other people out of the cap table, and so you know we're able to prove that we can add value and sort of carve out a smaller position on the cap
1: table. That's awesome.
0: So, just a follow-on question: Would you correlate the fact that uh, an opportunity that doesn't uh, check all the boxes for other funds? to the regular bias that we see on on Venture Capital and the lack of diversity and everything else, or it's different to that?
2: You know, I think it's broader than that. I think VCs, you know, me included, like we've been trained to look for a certain set of heuristics. We like to recognize patterns. And as a company exhibits certain trends, uh, the SaaS space is certainly an easy one. People are looking for a specific level of sales, a specific level of top-line growth, a specific net dollar retention. And you can create sort of a company on paper that you know is very likely to get funded and it's probably going to be a competitive process to do so. I think some of those less competitive deals for us, they just didn't tick any of those patterns that VCs are looking for Maybe um, we invest in tech-enabled businesses, and that can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. And so, frankly, some of our most exciting investments, when we invested at the A, you know, weren't competitive at, at all. And you know, now as they've raised sort of B's and C's, the processes have become quite competitive. You know, maybe not trying to fit something inside a certain box the way that some other funds try to do so.
0: Understood.
1: We would love to move on to one of your different hats, right? It's all about the time management and how much time you spend in each. So we would love to hear a little bit about, this is like a a multiple question and feel free to answer with how it best fits. What's your style of board membership? It's changed over time. What do the best do on boards that makes it so great? And how do you think about time allocation across a portfolio and on, on different boards? Should you only spend time with winners? Like, should you allocate time over all the companies? Like, what has been some of the biggest lessons in this aspect of investing?
2: So I think similar to investing, you know, to be a great board member, you have to actually serve on a board. And who wants a board member from a small fund with no experience? You know, probably no one. My advice to others, you know, really just starting in this field is one, gain experience any way you can. You know, that could be as an observer, it could be on a nonprofit board, but experience itself, I think, is incredibly important. You know, something that I try to do, which, which should be table stakes, is just be prepared, read and review the board deck in advance. I like to send questions to the management team before the actual meeting and then in the meeting, spend more time listening, more time asking questions than actually offering advice on you know how to run the business. You asked, what do the best do? You know, we one of the board chairs for one of our businesses, Ometria, which is in the customer analytics space, is Lance Batchelor. So Lance was the CEO of Domino's Pizza Group, public company, had a big corporate job. The organization and sort of institutional rigor that he brings to a startup board. Now we led the A. So this is a small company. Lance was the board chair even then. And now the company's raising a C and remains the board chair. I think has served the company just incredibly well. I'm a big proponent of create the board and formalize it very early. Lance does not let you sit idly by. If you don't come prepared, he's calling you out. And as a result, he's created an incredibly engaged board that's resulted in some super fruitful discussions. Um, so that's, that's sort of my opinion on board membership. Your question around, should you only spend time with winners? My short answer is no. I think, you know, you've got to do your entire portfolio justice. The raw math behind it is probably leans towards yes. You know, if a very small number of companies are going to generate the vast number, vast amount of returns for the fund, well, lean into those businesses and try to help those the most possible. I think the flip side of that is, one, those are the companies that probably need the least help. And then two, I think your reputation is built on the companies that aren't doing well. And I don't think it has to be any type of secret sauce. It's not like, holy cow, you need to go find a bunch of customers for this business. It's more just being a reasonable human and a sounding board for a founder who could be having an incredibly difficult week or month or year, whatever it is, just be available at midnight when a founder's crying and just needs somebody to talk to. I think that's a role that almost any VC can play. And I think you'll be surprised at one you know, hopefully that business turns around and ultimately results into a winner. But if it doesn't, that experience can lead to other deals. I'll give you a quick anecdote. Fortunately, I haven't had any too many true zeros, but uh, I invested in a business in the sort of food services space. I love the idea. I love the team. We ended up growing a little too quickly, ended up not working out. And the business was being wound down. It was the first time that I had gone through this. It was sort of early in my venture career. And I had convinced a bunch of friends to invest in the business as well. And I was sort of doing the rounds of calls and telling people I'm sorry. And uh, one of the more seasoned investors said, you know, what are you doing about severance? And how are you treating people? that probably you're going to find out tomorrow that the business is shutting down. And my initial reaction was like, who cares? I hadn't even thought about that. We've lost all our money. That's all that matters, right? And he sort of humanized it for me that, my gosh, there's a set of people that thought they had a job today and aren't going to have a job tomorrow. And he said that if I put $12,000 $12,000 of my own money, which at the time was an astronomical amount If I was like, you're insane, into the company, he would put, I forget the figure, but it was something like 10 or 20x that number. And he would pay set two weeks severance for every employee. And so I ended up saying yes. And that decision, one, it was just the right thing to do. But two, in my career has served me incredibly well, because I can't tell you how many people have reference checked me against the founders of those business of that business? And the first thing they do is tell that story. And so, long story short, like your reputation's important, I think you do need to spend time with both companies that are doing well and companies that aren't doing as well.
0: That's awesome. Moving on to other kinds of questions, I mean, do you have a special view of the different ecosystems around the world? I mean, I know you only, I think you only invest in the U.S., but maybe tell us a little bit, how do you compare different regions or how how would you compare and uh, what are the main aspects that you would look in terms of uh, macroeconomics and business environment uh, to be comfortable with and where would you go besides the U.S. at first?
2: (laughs) Sure, so on the macroeconomic side, you know, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I think venture is one of these asset classes that's really hard to time. I try to be mindful of where we are in the cycle, and that's by nature inexact. So it certainly feels like we're closer to the end of the cycle than the beginning, but we are trying to essentially constantly invest, use time diversification to our advantage. In terms of regions, you know, like you said, the majority of our investing happens in the U.S. I find it really challenging to source and build conviction in ideas without boots on the ground. If I'm trying to do a deal in Brazil, I just can't envision a scenario where I could compete against you two. You're going to have every advantage possible against me. And so in the instances where we had invested outside the US, you know, so we did Ometria, which is London-based. Uh, we did Leap Finance in India. You know, we've tried to do that alongside a trusted partner. So somebody on the ground that's leading the deal that we've got a relationship with. And I think that's certainly served us well.
1: Awesome, now that we've learned a little bit about each aspect of how you think throughout the investment process, We'd love to explore a little bit more of a a philosophical side with you. We usually end the conversation with a set of two philosophical questions. So the first of them, we would learn to know what you have in mind, you know, about the future of life and humanity. How far can we dream that our world can create the solutions that we need for sustainability? Uh, we can explore a little bit about what are the main issues and problems you would expect innovators to address, right, over the next few years, and if any of these philosophical mindsets and thinking drive your investment decision.
2: So I'm going to try to not give you a cop-out answer, but, you know, I'm the consummate optimist, and I think, you know, you have to be to some degree in this space, and so I'm bullish on the human race, uh, and while I think you know, certain moments can seem bleak, I'm supremely confident that we're going to figure it out. I'm a big believer that we're going to make it all work. You know, how does this translate to investing for me? I think because the return cycles in venture are so long, you can invest in these sort of quote-unquote obvious trends. And it's something that I like to do. Like, I want to have the wind at my back. I'm not trying to invest in the melting ice cube or the last puffs of the cigar, I want one of many criteria for our investments to be a hey, strong macroeconomic tailwinds. And so these are things like, is e-commerce growth going to become a larger percentage of total retail sales? Uh, yes, I think it will. Is online grocery penetration going to go up over time? yes. Uh, is finance and banking and brokerage going to become more democratized? Yes. you know These are all things that I think are fairly obvious, but can be incredibly powerful when investing. So I try to be on the right side of those trends.
0: Any view or any trend that you would uh, expect uh, on education and health in general, not, not a specific like the bio tax uh, ideas, but how humans are going to deal with the issue that those are the two sectors that increases uh, cost and year by year, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a great one. And I think it will 100% be what defines the next 50 plus years is our own health. I think you've got a couple of dynamics at work. One, we've got more data than we've ever had. And to me, I mean, I'm a data junkie. You know, I'll wear like four fitness trackers at a time. And I think that stuff is really cool. You know, whether it's uh, levels or a whoop or a halo or a Fitbit, like there is information at our fingertips that we haven't had historically. I think the next step of that is how do we then take that data to encourage people um, to sort of engage in preventative care? And I think there's a million I'm the farthest thing from a healthcare expert but that to me is the next wave of opportunity is how do you stop treating problems and start treating the patient before there's a problem and i think there's a, a whole set of companies in various spaces going down you know these various fields and that's what i think's really exciting you know over the next like i said 10 20 50 years
0: that's awesome. I totally agree with you and on the believing on human race, so I'm, I'm an optimistic person in, in general. so I agree. The final icebreaker that we have the we normally ask uh, Brock is uh, tell us uh, what you're currently excited about and something that uh, scares you at the moment.
2: <laughs> All right, so so Laura, you know I get excited easily, so this could be one of <laughs> you know this could be really anything. <laughs> But I started playing squash two and a half years ago. (laughs) I knew what the sport was. You know, you use a racket and a a hard rubber ball and you sort of, you know, knock it around on a four wall court. To me, it looks like the lamest thing in the world. A friend of me, a friend of mine, uh, asked me to play and I did it. And one was just impressed with the workout. I think my ass was sore for like a week. And then, you know, more impressed with, sort of the degree of of strategy that's involved in the sport. Because again, it's not just hitting the ball over the net, it's hitting it off a wall, and sometimes hitting it off multiple walls. I'm 37 years old. I think it's rare for, you know, as you get older to find steep learning curves. It's super fun to start something new and be terrible at it, which I was. And then I've really dedicated a lot of time to it. I'm lucky because there's a phenomenal coach It was one of the top players in the world that happens to reside in Richmond. And so I get to train and play with this guy all the time. And so I've really taken a very methodical approach to getting better at squash. And no surprise, I've seen a massive improvement in my game. And it's really been kind of one of the highlights of me for the last several years and something that I continue to be excited about. And then what's scaring me, you know, we're building a new office here in Richmond, which is really exciting. I am not a real estate developer. I've never, I bought a house and that's the only real estate I've ever owned in my life. The approval process that is required to sort of get a project like this done, and it's a very small project, I wasn't prepared for. It's incredibly daunting. We bought the building a year ago and fingers crossed we have a meeting with city council on Monday, so in a couple days, and hopefully that's the last hurdle to cross before we can actually put a shovel in the ground and ultimately build uh, this building. But that's certainly what's scaring me right now.
0: Oh my God, I keep my fingers crossed for you. But it's uh, it's nice that you, <laughs> that you mentioned the squash because I heard you talking about it and how a squash being like a less um, important uh, modality, it, you would have access to the big guys. My question would be, do you think a squash would be someday what tennis is now?
2: I sadly don't. I think this it, it is one of the fastest growing sports. And I see tremendous growth ahead of it. At the end of the day, a lot comes down to money. And there is a lot of money in tennis because there's a lot of money in TV and streaming rights. Sadly, there is very little money in squash because there's very few TV rights. The prize pools at tournaments are very low to dedicate your life to squash. You have to truly love it for the spirit of the game and nothing else. And so I think that puts a ceiling on the growth. I'm super excited about it because I think it'll continue to grow for here from here. I think it's a, a phenomenal sport that you can play at age four and you can play at age 84. And whether you're male or female, it translates really across a wide sect of the population. I'm very bullish on squash going forward.
0: <laughs> That's interesting. Well, tell me uh, one of your biggest uh, inspiration or your biggest one.
2: You know, I think an obvious one for me is my dad. He's been an incredibly successful finance guy and certainly a wonderful example as I've built my career. I'm going to say my mom. She's an entrepreneur. She built her own business. She's a lifelong learner. She's a voracious reader. She had a very successful consulting business. And she gave that up to raise me and my brother. And then in her 40s and 50s, you know, when we were sort of off doing our own thing, uh, she got her PhD when she was, you know, know, 10 and 15 and 20 years older than her classmates and has gone on to continue to collect sort of math, you know, multiple master's degrees. She's constantly acquiring new information. She's got this passion for learning that's really rubbed off on me and I think is a vital skill set to be successful in venture.
0: Wow, that's so wonderful. Awesome. I could spend uh, more time uh, listening to your stories, and I miss all the the Kaufman uh, environment and atmosphere. So it's uh, wonderful to have just a little bit of that with you this evening. Thank you so much, Brock, for accepting Whenever we publish, we'll send it to you. And uh, I hope you enjoy. And I hope uh, this will make uh, all the Kaufman Fellows accept our invitation to, to this podcast.
2: <laughs> oh, my pleasure. This is super fun. <laughs> I mean, thank you both for having me. I, you know, ahead of this, I'm like, all right, I gotta, you know, go listen to some of these podcasts and figure out the sort of nature and tone of the interview. Historically, they're all in Brazilian, you know, like they're all in Portuguese. Yeah. Oh my gosh! All right, is this is this the first English one?
0: I think so. I mean, organized and recorded by Brazilians. I think this is the first spoken in English. And uh, the idea here is really to bring other ecosystems to Brazil. I mean, to change uh, ideas and uh, to compare the realities and. Uh, to have access of uh, other people's mind and, and knowledge. So that was the main idea. And we definitely had to do it in English. So yeah, I mean, basically the other podcasts are too much organized to, to be surrounded by on the same ecosystem. And we decided to go abroad because we know this exchange of our ideas, information, knowledge, and mindsets is very important. So that's the idea.
2: Well, I think it's great.
1: Yeah. And this is also, I don't know if you checked out Astela Playbook, right? Which was the Brazil-based ecosystem podcast in Portuguese. Yeah. And then Lara and I decided to go explore the world. So to learn a little bit about other people and other ecosystems and what they're thinking about investing in their own ecosystems in Brazil. And I guess it's very rich to be able to like gather information as if we're actually traveling into these ecosystems and learning a little bit about the different perspectives. So that's the idea.
2: Well, it's super cool. Thank you both again. I had a lot of fun
1: yeah no it was really exciting and just think so the listeners are not seeing us they're hearing us i guess everyone can see brock's enthusiasm as he speak and ex- you know as he said he gets excited about a lot of things we're actually seeing him express himself and as he speaks he like <laughs> very expressive and it, it's very contagious so thank you brock and i'm sure the listeners will be able to see this as it'll pass through so <laughs> that
2: sounds good thanks again
1: thank you so much Brock. <laughs> thanks Brock.